Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. We talk student accommodation, Skidmore's letter to Research England, assault and harassment at universities, and the student response to Orga. Plus, we've got hidden history and a live version of Yes, But Does It Correlate? It's all coming up. Because I suspect a lot of children give substantially more than £1,000 a year. Even at uh, uh, kind of my time at university, there were some students for whom mummy and daddy paid their rent, which meant they were great people to go for a night out with because they were never short of the price of a pint. But... Um, <laughs> Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to run around the track of higher education policy. As usual, we have three superb guests in Cheltenham. We have strategic data advisor Andy Yule. Andy, give us your highlight of the week, please. Uh, Rachel, my highlight of the week is I have a jazz gig tonight. (gasps) Exciting. Well, good luck with that. And in London, we have Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Vice Chancellor Education at London South Bank University, Sean Waring. Sean, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, it's my, my dad's highlight, actually. My dad was 93. Oh, wow. So, congratulations to Jeff Waring. And in Wonky HQ, we have Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan, or as we sometimes call him, DK. DK, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, at the risk of dragging things back to higher education policy, I was delighted to note that the HESA AP student record has now been renamed. It is the HESA student alternative record. And in um, a difficult and challenging political week like this, I think we need to hang on to moments of sense. (laughs) Right, we start this week with student accommodation. And as students have returned back to university over the last month, the news has been full of stories of lack of space and cases of accommodation not being ready. Universities Minister Chris Skidmore has responded to these stories and took to Twitter, where he described the situation as an inadequacy and deeply concerning. DK, why don't you kick us off on this one? Well, as you say, this was um, a brace of stories over the week, just as students are starting to... uh, uh, attend university or return to university for the first time about shortages of accommodation. Now, if you live in a university city, you might think that pretty much every other building is now um, a student hall of residence uh, with um, a jacuzzi and a gym <laughs> and everything else. That these things a, slide, a slide. Yeah. <laughs> a slide, yes. Um, but it does appear that in certain cities, particularly the stories have been around the University of Bristol, uh, but also Portsmouth, Swansea, Stirling, London. Um, there are not enough spaces that are actually ready for students to move into. So we're hearing stories of students being put into travel lodges, students studying in Bristol, but living in uh, the town of Newport in South Wales. Um, so clearly there is something that has gone wrong with the provision of um, accommodation. I should caution, it's not a massive problem. These aren't thousands and thousands of students. These are a few students, but it's still a really poor experience, especially for students coming to university for the first time. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, I, mean, I, I wonder what the expectations are 
uh, around this. Has this never happened before? I wonder. You know, have have there never been uh, problems, glitches? And of, of, of course, it's 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 very difficult and arguably unacceptable. Young people leaving home for the first time, maybe. But I think there is something about uh, you know the expectations that we now have, you know, and, and students as 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 consumers, um, and you know that 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 immediate recourse to Twitter and the virtual table thumping of of, of something must be done. Um, is this is this really that unusual? I wonder. Um, well, I, I can remember it happening when I was at university and students being put up in a hotel. So I agree with Andy. Um, I guess I was interested from the, uh, you know, an, yet another impact of the removal of the student number cap and uh, variation, uh, you know, quite large swings in the numbers of students going to different universities. But I was also interested from the, the beginning of the up curve in the, the demographic um, blip of 18-year-olds. And as that number rises, of course, it'll impact on universities, but also schools and colleges. Um, and I think there'll be a lot more pressure on school buildings, which actually I think is a, a potentially a much more serious issue. This looks to me like uh, the blame such that it is, is being placed on providers of private halls wherein accommodation is not ready. So this isn't strictly an issue with the university not providing providing suitable accommodation or there not being any suitable accommodation in the city. This uh, this seems to be a story where a student has a kind of uh, uh, booked a room in one of those fancy new halls, but the room is not actually ready. So the people that are providing the halls are um, putting them up somewhere else temporarily where the room is finished. I, I was intrigued by uh, Chris Gidmore's comments that he sees the whole shape of student accommodation as an issue that he feels need to, needs to be dealt with. Uh, this could perhaps start by the return of the information on accommodation that was once on Unistats that has um, long since disappeared. So students are often unable to find out the average cost of accommodation around the university or the availability of accommodation around a university. I think that is something uh, concrete that perhaps could change. So, something else about this is the, um, the implications of the academic year, actually, because building plans um, have to be finished for that point at which students turn up. And, and obviously what we've got here is a problem where students have turned up and, and potentially, actually, there will be accommodation even in maybe a couple of weeks because, you know, my experience of building projects is... Um, you know, they're, they're not finished until they're finished. And there may be lots of um, half, you know, when you drive around the country, you can see lots of building sites around universities. Um, and it may be that it's just a, a, a glitch in planning, which is a, a two week gap, but it has a massive impact at the start of the academic year. And, and just picking up on that point, I travel around the country a lot. I visit a lot of university towns and there is a hell of a lot of um, student accommodation being built. You know, there, there, there are massive projects going on. Um, and you're absolutely right, Sean. You know, sometimes big projects run into um, slight difficulties. But what is the responsibility lie between the um, you know private provider and the university? Because the university, of course, is in partnership with the, with the private provider. Um, I believe in a lot of occasions the private uh, provider is just actually uh, kind of building a hole on a speculative basis, thinking they'll probably fill it with students. I mean, that's been going on for a long while. So the, the responsibility should fall solely with the private provider, you think? Um, in this case, yes, I, I, um, I do think so, that um, the only exception would be if... Um, uh, an institution is offering directly places in a private ho hall actually when a partnership does exist. But as you say, it's, um, it's a building project. Sometimes building projects do get, uh, delayed. And again, this isn't 
uh, massive amounts of students. The, the other thing is, I think some students are much more vulnerable than others. Um, so I do some work with students who are estranged from family members or uh, are care experienced. And we know that this sort of thing has a huge, huge impact on them because they don't have anyone to go home to. They may not have you know, access to funds to, to just soften um, this period of time, um, and they may they just may not have the, the emotional support. Um, so I think from a university point of view, it's really important to know who these students are and to be able to offer more support for the students who are most at need. Right now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hey, I'm uh, I'm Anders, and I'm the CEO of Alan. In my article, we call we can't predict the future, but we can prepare for it. I wrote about digital strategy and how universities can focus their strategic thinking on digital to create the best possible learning and teaching experiences for students. And one, one of the reflections that I had from speaking to university leaders across the UK and, and beyond is that in order to think strategically about digital, we can't be passive. This means we have to move away from this wait and see mentality towards technology and instead focus on what the institution actually needs from the technology. And to bring this to life with an example, adopting a technology that supports interdisciplinary connections will have absolutely zero impact if that isn't actually reflected in the curriculum at the university. Another reflection is, is more sort of a, a word of caution when eliciting impact from our students. At, at one university, for example, students were asked what they wanted and, and the response was lecture capture. And this on the face of it seems like a, a clear request for technology from the student body. However, as, as a senior leader shared with, with me, digging into what students actually wanted from that learning experience perspective was not necessarily re- more recordings of lectures, but potentially fewer lectures, more interactivity, more connectedness. And so I hesitate to say that students don't know what they need, but personally I would strongly advocate that listening to students' learnings um, rather than their request for specific technology is, is really important because that's the only way that institutions can make strategic decisions on the intersection of technology and pedagogy. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we will be in touch. Now, next up, yet another HE letter. And you really would have think we would have moved to email by now. But anyhow, Chris Skidmore has written a letter to Research England's Executive Chair, David Sweeney, in regards to the proposals regarding the Knowledge Exchange Framework, or KEF, as it's known to its friends. DK, you love research and you love a letter. So it seems right that you talk about this one. So this is lovely. Um, in the same way that the, the, uh, the minister gets to write a letter of, of um, a guidance letter, I believe it's called, to the Office of Students. He also gets to write one to Research England. So we get um, double the letters in a, a normal year, or in this year, an extra 25% of letters. Uh, so this is the only letter... <laughs> This is the only letter that I know of that's gone to Research England this year from the, the minister. And um, it's rather lovely um, in that he spends a large part of it just saying really nice things about Research England, who, um, in contrast to the Office for Students, perhaps more newsworthy, shall we say, um, approach to um relationship with the sector. Research England has very much sat quietly and got on with its job. So there's lots of uh, nice things. We get um, a restatement of the government's commitment that 2.4% of GDP is spent on research by 2027, which is good news because there was a number of rumours over the summer that that disappeared entirely. Uh, KEF seems very much to be proceeding full speed ahead. Um, uh, it'll be uh, the first exercise will start, I believe, this academic year as is planned. Um, and 
Um, he's also very happy with the way that Research England is working with Ukraine more widely. Um, he restates uh, the uh, commitment to QR. Um, he reannounces increases for QR and Haif by 2020. Um, and it's all really lovely stuff. So I would imagine, in fact, I know for a fact, because there was a quote in this morning's daily, that uh David Sweeney is really pleased with what's happened here. But I just think it it sets out the contrast between the Office for Students and Research England. They're the two old parts of um, Hefke, but they seem to have gone in very different uh, directions regarding their public profile. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm delighted that David's picked up on the 25% more letters statistic. Uh, maybe Chris Skidmore is launching a bid for the Letter Excellence Framework uh, on... <laughs> On the back of this, I mean, but but more more seriously, yes. I mean, just just to reiterate a lot of what David said, they they're taking a very different approach um, to their uh, neighbours down there in 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 Bristol. Uh, very different approach to to putting this together. Um, I'm particularly interested in in the knowledge excellence framework, uh, or the knowledge exchange framework, or whatever KEF stands for now nowadays. Um, and just just the sense that this is another metrics driven judgment uh, on the sector um, and this is difficult this is controversial potentially and I think really just picking up on, on what David said I think the way they are going about this um, is perhaps uh, a little more helpful uh, and a little less head- headline grabbing uh, than uh, than the TEF um, so yeah this 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 I think is all very good stuff and and I, I agree. I think David Sweeney is, is doing an excellent job there. Um, I thought it was really interesting how wide um, and inclusive the letter was. It talked about universities having global and national roles, but also local and regional roles and the importance of solving local issues. Um, I was very curious about whether it was mostly concerned with STEM or whether it was embracing other disciplines. And it does explicitly talk about arts and humanities as well as particle physics and medicine. Um it talks about research areas across all institutions, which was interesting. Um, and it just it talks about the benefit of universities to the, to the whole country, to the economy and to society. And it talked about us addressing massive um, agendas such as climate change and ageing. So it was a really a wide-ranging, comprehensive letter that, that went right across the sector. And it talks about the importance of curiosity-driven research, um, which is, was a new term for me, but alongside um, that focus on um, privately funded, um, private investment in impact-driven research. And so although I wasn't sure... Um, that I wanted a division between those different kinds of research because I'm not sure you know what you're doing. You know, I'm not sure you know that agenda before you start. I think it all has to be driven by curiosity. I, I welcome that idea that actually there's a value for just asking questions. So I, I thought it was a terrific letter. And yeah, I'm, I'm all for more letters. <laughs> you heard it here first. 25% more letters by 2024. Uh, Every week we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is the hidden history of HE. The end of the binary line, the, the d- divide between the uh, the autonomous sector of universities and the public sector of uh, higher education institutions, comes in two chunks. Um, one at the end of the 80s and one at the beginning of the 90s. The first part is that 
um, Margaret Thatcher is persuaded that the Polytechnic should be incorporated, i.e. they should be taken out of the local authority control. So one of the complaints all the way from the start of the process from Polytechnic directors is that they are trapped in a layer of bureaucracy uh, driven by the local authorities. Um, to start with, there are discussions about how, how much money a Polytechnic could spend on its own. Is it £100 or is it £200 without having to go and get you know, the local authorities control? So they're seen as a department of the local authority. Um, and that heritage continues. So the local government pension scheme that um, is uh, provided to uh, staff in uh, uh, post-92 institutions is, is part of that heritage. But at the point, you would find that you know, the payroll was run through them, the committee structure was run through them, they weren't allowed to own their own buildings, everything had to be signed off by the, the local authority. So Mrs. Thatcher is convinced, and she's convinced, again, because the polytechnics are business-focused, they're keen to expand, they're keen to do what the government wants to do. But they also had the extra argument about the loony left. Because if there was something that we all know about the the, the way that uh, the Conservative government in the 80s was having to deal with things, they were so um, against the, the loony left running um, large uh, conurbations. And therefore, the, all the polytechnic directors had to say is, we could be so much better if we weren't enthralled to all these people and their, their anti-nuclear um, campaigning and their all of these kind of things. Just free us from this and we will do all of these kind of things. Whether they believe this or not, it was a really good uh, reason to get Margaret Thatcher behind them. So that's fine. And they were incorporated, they were allowed to, to run free. There's all sorts of weird things that happen apart of that because obviously um, some of the polytechnics get dealt quite a good hand. Um, they get to have the, um, the countryside training centre that used to belong to the um, local authority or they get dealt... Uh, the hand of you know the local authority giving them all the really crappy stuff um, that's going to need you know huge amounts of maintenance and, and upgrade. But but th- those kind of things kind of sort of and the the polytechnics get to be incorporated and the colleges as well alongside them. There's a there's a discussion about how big you have to be and how much money uh, and there's a kind of line drawn through the the sector as to who gets to be incorporated and then have its own funding body. So they get looked after by the polytechnics and colleges funding council um, and that continues off for a couple of years. But then the next chunk comes after Mrs Thatcher's left and John Major's come in uh, and the discussion point comes about the next natural stage which is should we have one sector of higher education working together? I think that's probably coloured by the UFC finding it quite hard to make universities do what they're supposed to do which was to expand cheaply. The polytechnics are quite keen to do that and the idea of bringing the whole sector together uh, is clearly quite good. There are big concerns in government about academic drift, that sense that polytechnics are going to stop doing what they're good at and there are documents which read just like the concerns that you'll read in the the Telegraph today about polytechnics running two academic courses, doing research that they shouldn't be doing, uh, and generally drifting from their original mission. So there's a concern that they're going to do that. Uh, John Major is assured by Ken Clark that though that we find we'll have lots of mechanisms in place uh, to do that, um, but off they go and they take the decision that we will have one sector and we'll merge them all together. So Polytechnics get the opportunity to become universities. We get Hefke, which then starts its uh, 25-year run, um, and then we get one sector glued together. Obviously, there's lots of discussions when that first comes together. There's a great file, uh, again, about discussing how the funding model will work and how people will migrate to a single uh, cost. Um, but the, the sector sets off in, in a relatively straightforward way. But yeah, that, that initial thing of will there be parity of steam between vocational and academic forms of education uh, that's a concern that Michael Howard expresses uh, in the paperwork um, 
is a is a key tension that I think we're still dealing with today, and one that probably the Conservative Party still fights about. So off off we go. Um, this new move towards the class of society, the idea that academic and vocational education would work together, and obviously what we've seen is is that development. Now there's an argument, and I think um, it's Simon Jenks, Jenkins that makes it is that the polytechnics win. Effectively, it's the polytechnic model much more than the the autonomous model of the universities that win out from that. Uh, but that's the that's the sector we get bequeathed in 1992. Now next up we're going to talk about UK's Changing the Culture follow-up but first we wanted to let you know that the full lineup for Wonkfest has been released. Hosted over two days with 104 speakers and 54 sessions, Wonkfest is a must-attend event for people working in higher education. At Wonkfest we bring the sector together to tackle some of the the biggest issues that we share um, and the great challenges of navigating what lies ahead. Held in a new venue, the 2019 Festival is a two-day non-stop festival of ideas, new thinking, analysis and debate. You can choose what to focus on and build an experience that will be most valuable for your professional role and organisation. Speakers this year include Chief Wonk and Statistician, Editor of 538, Nate Silver. We've got Shirley Pierce, who's leading the independent review of the TEF. We've got Chair of UKRI, John Kingman. And we are delighted to say that the Minister of State for University Science Research and Innovation, Chris Skidmore, will be delivering a keynote speech. The sessions range from headline plenaries to masterclasses and from interactive workshops to fireside chats. You will never be too far away from a new idea or useful insight. There'll be old colleagues and new connections yet to be made from different and unexpected parts of university life. With an abundance of interesting things to do and see, we think it will be the most valuable uh, two days out of the office that you'll have all year. And if you are a Wonky Plus subscriber, your tickets are discounted. We've sold out for the last two years, so head to wonkfest.co.uk to see the full lineup and book your tickets. We cannot wait to see you there. Next up this week, Universities UK has released a report on its task force examining violence against women, harassment and hate crime. As well as this report, a BBC investigation published on the 3rd of October suggests that the reporting of rape, sexual violence and harassment at UK universities has tripled in three years. Universities told the BBC they recorded 476 allegations of sexual harassment or sexual violence against students in 2016-17, whereas there were 1,436 recorded in 1819. Sean, could you give us an overview of this one, please? Yes, Rachel. So this is the uh, new report out from Universities UK, Changing the Culture, and it's two years on from their first survey into sector-wide um, experience of tackling sexual misconduct and gender-based violence, harassment and hate crime. Um, so it comes uh, hot on the tail of a BBC report um, and they both had similar findings, which was an absolutely uh, huge increase in reporting of sexual misconduct and gender-based violence. Um, and of course, the question that immediately prompts is, is that an increase um, in actual um, incidents of violence or is it a reporting increase um, and one of the things that's highly relevant to this is that two years ago in 2017 we had the Harvey Weinstein uh, case all over the press and that led to the hashtag me Too campaign on Twitter which resulted in um, reports of gender violence um, some major um, some current, some historical and, and some minor, but absolutely huge outpouring of people's experience of gender-related violence. Um, and certainly here at London South Bank University, we saw a big increase in reporting, and that included historical cases um, as well as current cases. So it really changed our view of, of, of how prevalent it was, um, how great a responsibility we have for, for addressing it, um, that this is not acceptable. As, as Julia Buckingham has said, it's not acceptable in society or in universities. Um, and we have got an absolute responsibility for making sure our students are safe. 
Well, I mean, obviously, this is not something that anyone should have to experience in this day and age. Um, and it is right that I, I think the BBC figures show that uh, more and more people are coming forward uh, with um, things that have happened to them that the that, uh, universities need to take action of. Um, I am still concerned that uh, some of these uh, processes are not... Uh, completely locked down, completely watertight. Um, I think if you are taking what is actually a huge personal risk, um, to make an allegation like this, uh, that you should feel that everything about the process in which you are participating is completely reliable. And I think if we don't have that, or even, even if we don't have the sensation that processes are completely reliable, then, then this is actually going to, uh, dissuade people for uh coming from uh coming forward now i don't think that the the that uh, uh 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 this should be used as a stick particularly to beat the sector with i think as sean says there are problems in all area of in all areas of society i think that it is something that i mean universities can do um in making these processes robust and uh kind of making them visible um, and I think that to do that would make students feel a lot more uh, uh, comfortable about uh, raising these cases. Yeah, I think there are there are two very difficult boundaries around this uh, whole topic. Um, one general boundary, I, I think, you know, the fact that many of the the issues and and, and allegations that will be raised on, in, in in this area are acts of illegality. And therefore, there is the boundary between uh, the role and responsibilities of the university and the role and responsibilities of of the police and and the whole legal system. So I I, I think you know that that is an extraordinarily difficult uh, boundary to navigate. The other one, the other thought I had, sort of skimming through through this report. So there 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 is, I think, an assumption in a lot of this debate that this is about acts of individual people. Uh, behaving in a particular way towards other individual people. There is something, I think, about hate crime, which is th- th- that idea that it's not, it's sometimes it's not individual people, sometimes it is groups of people. Uh, and there are, I think, potentially some very difficult areas, uh, around, uh, hate crime, hate speech, which almost, I think, potentially impinge on issues of freedom of speech. Um, and at what point does somebody's freedom of speech become somebody else's hate speech? Um, and I think the boundary around that and, and, and particularly as we see the rise of, you know, political extremism, uh, in, in, in the country now. Um, I think that is a very difficult boundary. And I, I just had a sense that this report doesn't really go into that space. There seems to be this assumption that it's about individuals on, on in, individuals. And I think there is a bigger issue now, um, around groups, uh, and, and that other boundary. Yeah. So first of all, I think there's, there was a bit of pain and shock, actually, that we were in a community that had permitted this to happen. Um, so I, I think there was, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. There is that element. Um, this is not the sort of community we want to be. Um, but I agree with Andy, actually, about those boundaries, um, that when there's a police investigation that's ongoing, um, it affects the way that the university has to, to manage the case. And that's a very difficult boundary. And I also agree um, that there's a the continuum with other hate crime um, and 
obviously university responsibility to monitor and report that um, and to be conscious of it and, and part and be conscious of our role in that wider society um, and I do think uh, universities are a bit of a, a lightning rod as well because we're a community where things can be seen and measured um, but actually this is going on on the streets all around the university as well it's going out on in the wider community. Now it's time for a yes but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that the European Union are still happy to speak to. With accommodation in the air, this week's question is very simple. I've plotted the total number of students in an institution against the percentage of these students that are living in halls, be they privately or institutionally owned. Are larger providers more likely to have students in halls? Does it correlate? I, I, I think it probably does correlate, although maybe not as strongly as one might imagine. And I would just pick up on the conversation we had earlier about the number of private providers coming into the accommodation space and the idea that actually maybe that correlation will become stronger over time. I'm going to say it doesn't correlate and I'm going to keep my, se- my reasons to myself. <laughs> The answer is no, R squared is 0.09. So what is going on here? My initial thought was that there could be a regional effect, but there's no real change in looking at correlation for any individual region. For instance, for London, R squared is 0.02. It's also been suggested that there would be more of a correlation for pre-92 providers. There's actually less. R squared is 0.006. So whatever preconceptions you had about the type of provider that has holes, forget them. Data is from HESA for 2017-18, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, you may remember, just check my notes here, a full four months ago, uh, the release of Philip Auger's review of the post-18 funding system. Well, the Higher Education Policy Institute, or HEPI as it's best known, has done some research into how students view the policy proposals that were contained in the report. Andy, what do the students think then? Uh, so this report has been put out by the very excellent Rachel Hewitt at HEPI. Um, and I think it's very interesting when one thinks that a lot of the background uh, to the Auger review was uh, the perceived effect uh, that tuition fees had in the 2017 general election. Um, and uh, therefore the idea that what was coming out of Auger should be something that was uh, broadly welcomed by students. The, the the report, the research has found actually the students are probably less concerned about the uh, the absolute level of the tuition fee than maybe uh, the previous prime minister was hoping. Uh, so they're, they're, they're sort of less less concerned about that. They are, I think, concerned more about the um, the interest rates that are being charged. And of course, there has been some some frankly shocking behaviour um, around the way uh, the government has, has uh, driven the interest rate on this. And they are also uh, more concerned uh, about maintenance uh, grants uh, versus maintenance loans. And there is something in this about the fact that, you know, the maintenance issue is 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 very current. Uh, it is very today. Uh, and the idea that, you know, the, the tuition fee, it's it's kind of a bit like monopoly money. It's it's in the future. They never see the money. It never hits their bank account, of course. Um, and it's it's kind of a little bit ethereal. So it's it's maybe uh, a little more out there. So it's 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 some very interesting research. I am struck by the extent to which. Uh, the survey that you know, 1,100 students have been surveyed, they're all full-time undergraduate students. Uh, and that tells me that 
they are mostly going to be uh, traditional young young students. Uh, so uh, there is still, I think, a broader conversation around, particularly around part-time and mature students uh, for this. Um, but I think this is a very uh, a very interesting uh, contribution to the debate as, as we potentially hurtle towards some kind of general election. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, Sean, is this a good contribution to the... Uh I think this is an excellent contribution. I think um, the students bring a, a welcome breath of uh, common sense to this debate. I, I think they're very clear about the value of education. They're, they're very clear about um, the, the, the mix, I think, of um, uh, the, the likely payback in terms of uh, their salaries later on versus the challenges now. Um, and I think uh, in the spirit of listening to students, this should absolutely be taken into account in thinking about future funding. We all love um, a happy survey and we love them because of the insight we get into the mind of Nick Hillman. Um, and I think what Happy are pushing here is not so much the questions about Olga. They seem to be really interested in the relationship between students and their parents or guardians um, as regards living costs. So there is a question on the um, um, amount of money that uh, parents give students each year, which some really strange categories because I suspect a lot of children give substantially more than a thousand pounds a year or is it uh, two thousand pounds is the top uh, barrier and know from even a, a, a kind of my time at uh, university there were some students for whom mummy and daddy paid their rent which meant they were great people to go for a night out with because they were never short of the price of a pint but um, this seems to be the argument that I think Happy are building here is about parental contribution and the way parental contribution plays into the um, student uh, student maintenance uh, package. And I think I would love to have seen a few more questions. I mean, there probably are more. There probably were spaceable questions. There's only eight here um, on the wall way that students see parental support, family support as a part of what they would expect in their financial package and the way that support is used or could possibly in the future be used to uh, calculate a maintenance allowance either as a loan or as a grant. Um, so I, I absolutely agree there with DK and obviously it goes back to Andy's point as well about this really looking at um, uh, full-time undergraduate students, therefore younger students by and large um, and there's absolutely an age factor here um, that there's students who've got parents and a lot of students at South Bank are, are 25 and older and have their own children rather than um, relying on their parents. Um, and, I th- and there's a, a socioeconomic a socioeconomic class aspect as well. Um, so absolutely driving through the heart of this is, is assumptions about class and age in this report. So I totally agree. Just for the record that the the uh, the margin of error on this survey is plus or minus 3.09% at a 95% confidence interval. That means if we see anybody out there using the response to question one to uh, say that students are slightly keener on uh, the lower fees and the longer repayment rates or that female students are keener on the current system, we should call them out because it's not statistically valid. I'd like to make one final point on this, and it's a much broader point, um, and it's kind of looking back at 
uh, a plethora of reviews of higher education funding. You know, we've had Augur, we've had Brown, you know, some of us remember Deering. Um, Every single one of those delivered reports that said you have to take this as a whole. Um, and, you know, Ron Deering talk, talked about the compact between, you know, universities and government and, and the idea that, that the recommendations are coherent and have to be taken as a whole. And on every occasion, we have seen governments kind of cherry pick the bits that they like uh, and carry them forward to implementation. And there's just something about if we are at this point discussing one element of, of the orga recommendations, it's kind of almost as though we've 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 lost the whole point anyway um, because Orga was quite clear you either take this as a whole or you don't take this at all um, as was Brown as was Deering um, so you know whether, whether this particular element of, of Orga gets carried forward or not we shouldn't really be having this debate should we it's 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 kind of all or nothing so that is about it for this week to find out more about anything we've discussed today you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically just search for the wonky show on your favorite podcast directory or you'll find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show please do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch so thanks again to our guests Andy, Sean and DK, to everyone at Team Wonky for making this show happen and of course to you for listening right to the very end and until next week, stay wonky. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.